make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Hi, and welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast here today with my special guest, Phil Stark. Let me tell you about Phil. He is a talk therapist based in Los Angeles, working with clients all over the state of California. And he's a screenwriter and author with credits, including South Park, That 70s Show, and his book, Dude, Where's My Car? As well as his most recent nonfiction book about mental health and talk therapy, Dude, Where's My Car? Tharsis. Right. Yep. <laughs> hey, Phil, welcome to the show. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, you have had a really interesting journey coming from being a comedy writer and now turn therapist. So take take me back to your origin story and how you got into writing comedy, how you got into working on TV. Well, um, it has been a, a wonderful, long, strange trip. Um, I was always interested in film and decided to move out to L.A. to become a screenwriter. And I drove out here. I got a job at a cafe and I wrote screenplays all the time. None of them were funny. And I had a friend who said, you know, you're, you're a funny guy. You should write some comedy, write a TV show, right? Like, you know, it's episode of the Simpsons or something funny. So I did, and I was hooked. And um, so I started focusing more on comedy specs. And, uh, and then I got a real break when a friend of mine called me one day and said, would you like to come be the extra in a movie that these two guys I'm working for are shooting? And I was like, I don't know about that. I'm going to hang around today and lay around. And she said, well, it's a, it's a, the set is a, in a mansion in Beverly Hills where there's a, the, the script calls for a porn star producer to be having a massive party with all kinds of women and booze. And, and I was like, okay, I'm there. <laughs> the so, orgy party. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, the, the, the movie actually ended up being orgasmo, which was Matt Stone and Trey Parker's, uh, not their first movie, but, you know, a movie they made before South Park. Yeah, yeah, back then. And uh, after hanging out there a little bit, uh, I mean, super funny guys, I didn't really meet them then, but my friend then got hired to be uh, their assistant on South Park. Okay. And so she brought me on as a PA. Uh, and the like the, the six weeks between starting production and the show airing were insane. You know, previously you could just walk around Westwood Nobody really noticed. After that, it, it shows on the cover of like Time and Newsweek. It was amazing how quickly that show blew up. So I sort of chutzpahed my I've way. I interviewed, into... by the way, Debbie Liebling, who is the one who bought the show for Comedy Central. Yeah, so we yeah. have some origins with you know folks who we know. It's super uh, fun. I'm, I'm sure she has some great stories as well. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, you know, I, the guys knew I wanted to write, 
uh, I sort of took it upon myself to become a writer's assistant. I sort of finagled a position, you know, f- for myself there. And then one day I was driving that's with the, Trey. That's the official term, finagling. Yeah, yeah, finagle. Chutzpah <laughs> and finagling is two big parts of success in this business. Absolutely. Um, so I was driving Trey somewhere one day and he was talking about how he hadn't finished the Halloween episode. And I said, well, you know, I took the notes for that. I could just finish that. And he said, all right. They were so chill, those guys. They had never had any experience in the television production game. And so when they were put into that game, they still did everything the way that they wanted to do it. So there was no like, well, let me read a spec or let me talk to the executive. It was like, oh, sure. Yeah. So I finished the script and they liked it and they gave me another chance at another draft with notes. And I did that. And then eventually it aired. And the day after it aired, I had agents calling the production office saying, who is Phil Stark? Does he have an agent? (laughs) Look at that. That's great. Yeah, it really was. How long did you work on that show? Not very long. Uh, I was there during pre-production of the first season and then through production of the first season. Um, After that season, they decided not to uh, bring any of the writers back. Um, they had Comedy Central and, you know, Debbie, certainly uh, being part of that would know that they encouraged them to put together a traditional comedy room. Right. Here's, here's how you do it. You read a bunch of scripts, you hire five or six people, you come in, you sit around a room, you make jokes, everybody sort of contributes. But that show was so Matt and Trey's baby and mm. so that their voice that they didn't really need that. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure how they ended up running that room. I mean, still, it's, it's still going on. It's amazing. I know. But they basically have a small group of people who they just bounce ideas with and maybe trust to write some scripts. It's, it's much more different than your traditional network sitcom room. Well, I was uh, so a big first, fan of, a, of Six Days to Air. That, uh, oh, yeah. oh, my God. I mean, it was yeah. just like you really want to get a behind the scenes peek at how they are creating that universe and on what kind of a timeline is just mm-hmm. like it's mind blowing. It's really mm-hmm. mind blowing. Boy, mm-hmm. the stress. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a, a different experience for me, especially in light of my my future work. Um, but I was there for about a year, I guess. And uh, I was really bummed when I left because I loved the show and it was so mm. cool working there. But then when I, I got the job on that 70s show and they showed me that I get an office. Ah. <laughs> and then when I saw, wait, there are guild minimums. <laughs> It was it was definitely the right direction. Oh, that's great. So your agents kind of go, okay, we know where to put you next. And then that's how you got the job at that 70s show. Well, I I was really lucky in that this credit for South Park was so hot. Wow. That uh, I was able to meet everywhere. Uh, 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 You know, at that time, there were, you know, you get 30 network sitcoms on the air, Mm -hmm. much different than today. Sure. And um, I, I was able to come in at the very bottom rung of what would end up being called that 70s show. Um, and uh, it had, uh, it, I think it had like a nine episode guarantee. It wasn't one of the more um, uh, talked about shows of that season as far as like guarantees and time slots and stuff. But it ended up being the perfect place. It ran for eight years. I got to work with wonderful people at Carsey Warner, one of the last big independent producers um, regarding you know, syndication and reruns and stuff. So uh, um, yeah, the heat from South Park I just rode for a long time. That's so cool. And it's kind of everybody's, you know, that's like winning the lottery. It's a best case scenario for, you mm-hmm. know, working and writing in Hollywood mm-hmm. where you can have one credit that gets you into rooms and opportunities that open mm-hmm. doors and swing open, you know, the yeah. hinges like that. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, what happens after that? Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a staff writer on that 70s show. Um, 
It's a great show. Wonderful people, Bonnie and Terry Turner and Mark Brazil, the creator, really fostered a really wonderful environment. I don't have any nightmare showrunner stories like a lot of my other friends who bounce around from show to show. Sure. Um, and so the first season of that show, I'm a staff writer. I don't really have much responsibility other than to sit in the room, make joke pitches when I can and and try not to say things stupid. Uh, I'm not really involved in any of the upper level meetings. There's a lot of time when producer level people are doing editing or casting or production work. And I, we're just on our own, the lower level writers. So I had, uh, I've always, I always had a good um, work ethic. I was always working on a script. I had memorized this phrase. I'm working on several projects in various stages of development. And that, that was, that was my mantra for those early years. So I had, I had been writing these sketches about these two guys, this sort of Laurel and Hardy kind of updated stoner sketches for a while, but I'd never found a, um, a framework for it. Uh, and then one day, a, a great friend of mine uh, who lived nearby, we were hanging out and he was telling me that he had gone out the night before and couldn't find his car. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's sort of funny and, and, and a little sad, but let me help you. And another <laughs> week, oh, another week went by, we hung out again. I still can't find my car, dude. So, uh, it became sort of clear to me that, okay, I'll do, it'll be like a road trip movie. It'll be like a beginning and the end. I can't find my car. And they'll be about these guys waking up in the morning, not being able to find their car. At the end, they'll find their car. And then throughout that, I can just fit in all these funny sketches I've been working on. So I wrote that movie. And uh, uh, that, that same first year at 70 show, um, it sold. And uh, then I have all these uh, producers coming by my office and say, what the hell have you been doing in here, Phil? Writing your movie. You actually sold it. I was, yeah. Yeah. And so it's it, just another example of early in my career. Uh, uh, it was that combination of hard work, talent, luck, and chutzpah with a little finagling mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of things fell my way. And now you're a therapist. So yeah. With some kind of falling out <laughs> with yes. the movie business that uh, that sent you toward the direction of therapy it wouldn't be the first uh, that I've heard that story from. But I'm curious no. for you, your own personal character arc of like yeah. what happened and how did you end up on this path? Right. Well, I um, had a long career as a screenwriter um, for all the amazing breaks and luck I had at the beginning. Uh, it all balanced out because by the end, I, I couldn't get a pilot made. Staffing became really difficult. Um, the uh, Both the environment in terms of the amount of shows available to staff on. And also, uh, personally, you know, I don't have the same heat. You know, saying you worked on South Park and that 70s show was great when those shows were on the air. Right. Um, Ten years later, it doesn't get you the same kind of meetings. So uh, I was working less, making less money, and I was pretty unhappy, but I had never considered not doing anything else in my life. Mm -hmm. And the thing about this business that I learned and that I work oftentimes with clients now in the entertainment field is that nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you had a good run. You should find something else that's fulfilling for you because you have a long life ahead of you. Right. Um, so it was a long sort of wandering in the wilderness, being unhappy with the writing, but not knowing what else to do. Uh, eventually, I made the leap and decided to go back to grad school, which was a big hurdle for me. But eventually, like I tell my clients, change, it takes a long time to build up to that change. But when you are ready, it's suddenly easy to make these changes. Had you also um, burned out? Like, were you burned out or were you just unhappy with the circumstances or like you were ready for something new? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I didn't enjoy writing anymore. Mm. 
I mean, I had this amazing job on South Park, this wonderful experience on that 70s show, a perfect experience on Dude, Where's My Car being produced. But I didn't like writing pilot scripts anymore. I didn't like writing specs. I didn't like pitching. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the reasons, one of the last things I remember that really crystallized things for me is um, I had a manager towards the end of my career where when I told her I was going back to graduate school, I said, hey, you can have these specs that I wrote, you know, take them out, find a producer, you know, who knows, come back on. I'd love to run this show and maybe I'll be back. So about six months later, she says, hey, um, I took this spec. I found an actor. I got a producer. They love it. Uh, they want you to put together a deck, right? Which at the beginning of my career, a deck was a deck of cards. Now, you know, yeah. we know what a deck is, but, and I was like, okay. Thank you, Silicon Valley for right, uh, right. loaning us your, <laughs> your strategy to sell things. So I put together a deck and it wasn't so great. And I sent it to this manager and she said, I looked at the deck. It's not so great. I said, yeah, I know. And she said, what's up with that? And I said, well, I'm not really into it. And she said, um, but listen, if we sell this, you're the showrunner and you get to be the showrunner. Mm-hmm. And that was what I had worked for my whole career as a screenwriter. Mm. But I was able to, in that moment, say, you know what? I, I don't want to be the showrunner. I don't want that. And it was really a turning point for me to realize that what I'd worked for in this previous career a lot and, and struggled for and always yearned to attain ended up being something that I didn't want anymore. Wow. That's quite a realization where, right. I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, I feel tired even thinking about it. It sounds like it was. <laughs> well, it, it, it certainly was a turning point in my life. And now I'm in a career that, although I, I talk about similar content, it's completely different. And what I love about it is that I'm able to hang out with my screenwriter friends yes. and talk about what pitches they've sold or the state of the uh, uh, business. And I don't feel like I have to pitch myself or network myself or figure out how I can get some of that or be jealous. It's really liberating. And I'm in, I'm appreciating that uh, many of us don't have the same career our whole lives. And a lot of the unhappiness we experience is feeling like we we should. Boy, that's, yeah, really, really good point. I mean, my parents are both of the generation wherein you would have one job, one or two maybe jobs your whole career. And, mm-hmm. you know, my father was certainly that person. And, you know, it's interesting to see how we've evolved and changed and we do have more choices with our, within our own personal evolution. And um, I have a bit of like psychological background in that I love Jung and have done a lot of reading, you know, of, of especially of Jung's works and mm-hmm. thought that I would go into, into psychology uh, mm-hmm. within my own schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and, and it's interesting getting pulled toward creating the entertainment business school. Cause like you, I get to be around all the creatives. I get to mm-hmm. have fun playing mm-hmm. with my own writing, but because I published a novel, I knew, I knew for myself with my own love of writing, that it was never something that I wanted to like put under the pressure of, and it's gotta be your paycheck mm-hmm. and your income yeah. and your livelihood. And like, I'm like, it's my art. And I love that it's my art and it doesn't have this pressure on it or this timeline because I'll spend 10 years working on a book. So I knew that about myself and I've always had really fun, interesting, you know, jobs that I've really enjoyed doing that have then supported the mm-hmm. art, you know, and made it and, mm-hmm. and kept the joy uh, alive inside of it. So, I mean, and let's talk about burnout because it is a, an interesting aspect of Hollywood. I imagine that you talk to people inside your own practice who are handling burnout because mm-hmm. the hours are insane. The pressure is crazy. Mm-hmm. The, you know, fact that you could be unemployed at any given time, you know, it's top of mind right now, especially because of what's happening with the economy and all the shows getting canceled mm-hmm. right now and things like that. I'm just curious your perspective 
an opinion, you know, maybe even the guidance or advice that you're starting to give writers in your practice right now? Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of burnout, uh, I think there's a distinction uh, to be made, uh, whether that burnout is because uh, we are really tired and sick and unhappy of doing what we're doing, mm-hmm. or we're really tired and sick and unhappy with what we're doing for the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I work with clients oftentimes in hypotheticals. Let's say that your agent calls you tomorrow and says, I'm dropping you. What, what's your, what's your reaction? And sometimes it's, oh, I'm so relieved. Right. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, well, fuck that guy. I'm going to get another agent. Um, so it's, uh, it's hypotheticals we use to sort of measure our passion for what we're doing. I mean, is it writer's block where you just need to put the script away and write something else? Do you need to write a personal essay? Do you want to pick up uh, that novel that you started in college? Is, is your passion for writing still there, but it's just blocked by a particular project? Or are you sick of writing? If you sell this pilot, what would it feel like for you to be writing the show? Right. And my personal experience, like we just talked about, was I don't want to do that. Yes. And so that really allowed me to, to think less about the blockage in front of me and more about what could be behind that and what uh, what other options I could take that maybe weren't blocked. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let's talk a little bit about advice that you have for writers who are excited, who are coming into the industry with all their dreams and passions and, um, you know, explosion of talent ready to go. What do you tend to advise for them? You know, it's interesting because for all the work and study that I put into character development, pitching, narrative, structure, what I work with younger creative uh, individuals on most is is networking. Yeah. Um, It's how to present yourself. It's what people want to hear from you. It's uh, it's down to the nuts and bolts of, in fact, when I sit down and have coffee with people, I say, hey, listen, I want you to open your phone right now, open up your calendar, put a, put a uh, two month uh, into the future uh, calendar option, reminding you to email Phil and just say, hey, just want to touch base. Thank you for that coffee. Here's what I'm working on. Hope you're doing well, right? And I want you to do that for everybody you meet with. Fire off an email because eventually, when you do find that Phil sold a pilot and that you were looking for a writer assistant gig, your first contact with them isn't, Hey, it was nice meeting you. Here's what I want. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's not always just character and psychology with writers, although it is some of that, but it's also with younger people, especially learning how to network, how to present yourself, what people want, what people expect to hear from you. In my school, I call it community building and it's really making friends. You know, rather than it's easy for writers to go off into, you know, their room and write for a year or two and just disappear and forget that other people, you know, matter. And in this industry, it's such a teamwork based industry. And there's so much noise that having relationships that matter to you that are nourishing that, you Mm -hmm. know, everybody enjoys and have have fun with. Like, that's how you get your work a lot of times. Yeah, it's not networking if you enjoy it. The the trick is learning to enjoy it. 
Yeah. Making friends, you know, enjoying those friendships and those relationships. I do miss that about being in LA because I grew up there and spent so much time there. And the the creative community in LA is in my mind an estimate really unparalleled uh, Mm -hmm. in the country or anywhere. It's when I left and moved to North County, San Diego, one of the things I noticed is in LA, you meet somebody new. Hey, what's happening? What are you working on? You know, everybody has like, oh, a project, oh, a movie, oh, you know, piece of giant art that is a sculpture that's sitting in their living room. You know, everyone is just Uh so creative. And uh, when I moved away, it was like, what do you do? You know, Mm -hmm. what do you do? What do do you do for a living? And I was just Mm -hmm. like, wow, the what what are you working on question? The what are you, you know, creating Mm -hmm. question went by the wayside. I ended up really missing that, you know, the flow of the spark of creativity and others around who are doing all that. It's one of the reasons why I love Mm -hmm. having people like you on the show just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I love talking about it now that I'm sort of out of that world. Did you perceive that coming for yourself or, you know, is that part of the journey of finding your joy again as you got into grad school? Well, you know, when I was starting out, you know, getting this job on that 70s show, the way the business worked is you created a sitcom. It ran for about two years, eventually it syndicated. Then you had somebody else come in and run while well, you stepped away. you got a big development deal which back then meant that you just came to a bungalow and sat and wrote. I mean, I can remember when they didn't even expect you to go on staff to, uh, on a show. Uh, so I always figured I'd be just like my bosses. I'll right. Eventually I'll sell my pilot. It'll go just like everything else previously in my career and it'll syndicate. But the business changed. I mean, I remember watching Survivor premiere after the Super Bowl and people talking about reality TV taking up a lot of the space f- from these traditional sitcoms and thinking, well, you know, won't happen to me. Um, but... Um, you know, having that change, that's part of the big mid-life sort of career crisis for me was realizing, oh, I'm not going to end up the way I thought. And now I don't know how I'm going to end up. Uh, and it took a lot of time and, and, and energy and uh, exploration to figure out where I might end up. And now I'm so happy to be creating this path of mine, which sort of ironically runs parallel to my previous path, working with a lot of people um, and, and concepts that, that are shared. What do you typically talk about with creatives in your practice? What are some of the common themes that show up? Um, The inner critic is a big one. That voice that tells me I'm no good. That part of me that thinks this is crap. Um, I work with uh, writing teams a lot. Uh, I work with, you know, I work with romantic couples in my, in my practice, but I also work with work couples, you know, writing teams. I work with co-founders and it's interesting applying uh, the, principles we use working with romantic couples to platonic writing teams. Um, There's, you know, I wouldn't say it's coaching, but there's a lot of practical advice uh, and experience-based, you know, content based on what my career was like and what it's like to take notes. That's another big one, how to take notes, separating the instinct to protect yourself and defend yourself because a note subconsciously feels like it's an attack on Mm -hmm. you really work with people on that and not just not just not internalizing that and being able to do the work in a better way because of it but also realizing that people want to work with people we're like oh okay i see your i see your point not you just don't get it mm-hmm. right so th- those are the main i think uh, topics we work about with creatives and, and writers more especially so in that taking of the note it's one of those things that you know the producers and execs are always looking for is can the writer take the note, you know, is there some, some, some springiness there sure. to being flexible and hearing what's been spoken 
um, maybe integrating it, maybe not. What do you, what do you typically advise for writers who are struggling to take the note? Well, th that, this is interesting because I've worked with clients specifically about that. And, and, and the issue often is um, here's the note I got and here's why that note isn't right. And it's a long drawn out explanation, which then the person giving the note, can you have another long drawn explanation? And soon you're playing tennis about what, what, what is the right way, but there is no right way. So what I encourage writers to do when they get a note, for instance, they get a note that they don't, they don't want to take. All they have to do is say, you know, I appreciate your note. Um, here's why I don't think that applies. And, uh, but here's what I'm willing to do. And that's it. There's no justification. There's no rationalization. There's no reasons why, because that's a, a hamster wheel. It, it never ends. No so yeah, it's less about here's why I think the note is wrong and here are the reasons why. And more like, I hear your note. Here's, here's why I think it doesn't apply. Let's, let's move on. Well, let's go from there. Ball's back in your court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. Since you work with writers dealing with a oh no, I'm going to be such a failure if we talk about that. It'll be so bad. I know some who <laughs> you know won Academy Awards who are still looking at the award and going, "I didn't deserve this." I mean, it's yeah. interesting how deep the imposter syndrome and inner critic can run. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, part of it is figuring out whether what the client wants to do, what what the writer wants to write, and what they think they should be writing are aligned. Right. Sometimes. Uh, somebody might be really struggling with a feature and it's, it's just not working out. And then we really have to examine, do you want to be writing this feature? Is there something else you want to be writing? Is this the feature you want to be writing? Uh, beyond that, I really zero on times when a client will say, you know what, I was sitting down and write, and then a part of me was like, who fucking cares? This is going to be horrible. Why am I bothering? And uh, we apply a, a psychological concept called parts work, which is identifying these different parts of ourselves. Often, we are our own adult mature people, but there's a part of us that feels like we're going to be a failure and nobody's going to like us. Well, what is that part of us? That part is often uh, a younger part of ourself that has internalized some kind of criticism uh, or low self-esteem from our caregivers, our mom or our dad. It's classic, like Freudian, like tell me about your mom kind of stuff. Um, so we work to realize, okay, whose voice is that that's telling you you're no good? Where did you get that lesson from? And there's a, and then we sort of go on this journey, really sort of character backstory, right? Where we're really talking about where they learned this and where it comes from. And, and the goal is not to be like, you know what? I don't hear that voice anymore. I'm free to write. The goal is to, when you sit down to write and hear that voice, say, what the, what am I doing? This is shit for your adult self to be able to like, okay, I hear you, but you know what? That's, that's not really true. That's how you've been taught to feel. That's my nine-year-old self. I'm going to give my nine-year-old self a hug and say, hey, I got this. Trust me, it's going to be good. Like developing a, an inner parent for that part of yourself is kind of what I hear you saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also, you know, the concept of the inner child, right? How we all have uh, uh, a very aversion of ourselves from a younger age that reacts <clears throat> childishly. I mean, oftentimes in couples or in relationships, a client will say, yeah, God, my, I was acting like such a dick and my partner was like, oh, you're being so childish. Well, they are being childish. They're sort of acting out in a way that this childish part of themselves has learned to act and their adult self hasn't been able to really recognize it or at least take over and change it. So a lot of the work in talk therapy in general is just about exploring that, identifying it, understanding it, and being aware of it. What are some of those breakthroughs that come out of it? 
talk therapy sometimes gets a bad, bad rap for being nothing, maybe more than therapeutic, but I imagine you're seeing some breakthroughs working with the creatives. Well, listen, it's uh, this about understanding. I mean, we know everything about ourselves, but saying it out loud in a therapy session somehow really brings it to life. And for a writer to know that their mom was overbearing and uh, critical and was never really satisfied with them as a child is one thing. To be able to say, yeah, one time I brought a test home and it was an A minus and my mom said, nah, it's all right, but I know you can do better. Uh, and, and, and how the client, and God, that made me feel like it wasn't good enough. And ever since then, I remember like not feeling I could ever do anything good enough. Just telling a therapist that, bringing it out there, being aware of it can then change how you might react the next time that comes up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that you kind of have a, a set of tools uh, to be able to handle the situations that are showing up, especially because a lot of them repeat themselves, you know, our inner right. patterns and voices that tend to show up in those moments and those instances. And especially in a high pressure environment like Hollywood, the pressure is so high, the stakes are so high uh, that it, it can be really challenging to navigate your own mind in the midst of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, sometimes the last thing people want to do is be curious about themselves because it can be really scary. The answers you might find. Give an example of that. Um, well, let's see. Well, to continue with that example, um, you know, realizing that one of your caregivers, one of your parents might've been really critical to you and how that has been internalized as a critical voice, mm -hmm. um, uh, might lead you down a path of really examining your parents' childhood and thinking about what made them the way they are. And uh, sometimes it can be scary to have that kind of empathy and understanding for uh, your parent as an adult, as a person, separate from a parent. Um, uh, in addition, a common frustration is that my mom's still like that. And even if I'm able to understand this and explain it to her, she'll never change. Mm -hmm. And the truth is they won't. But through your understanding of them and acceptance of them, you can change your reaction to it. But all that can be scary because there's very traumatic, sad, scary content you're talking about. And sometimes it's easier to not deal with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so much of our material on, on screen comes from our family relationships, sure, right? sure. you know, how we grew up and what we perceived. And, you know, it's interesting now being the age that I am in my late forties, because watching TV, I will see you know, my generation who are now you know, the showrunners and you can see the influences of even our past, you know, and I can see like a resurgence of Goonies, you know, throughout the the sure. shows that are coming on. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Cause that was so influential for us, you know, and I was growing up and then you see the ripple effect of time, you know, and how stranger how things, stranger things. Yeah. The creativity that kind of um, bubbles through that, that was so seminal for us growing up. And then, and then also, you know, our, our certainly our family, dynamics and relationships. I hang out with a lot of comics, uh, even down here in San Diego. And certainly when I go up to LA and um, yeah, it's where all the material comes from, right? <laughs> oh, I, I love working with comedians. Yeah, it, you just, it, you gotta have fun. somewhere to go yeah. with that. You gotta have somewhere to go with that. It's like our salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, spending a lot of time with uh, with Gary Shandling too. I think I think we spent a lot of that time talking about his mother. Right. <laughs> so much time talking about the sure, mom. Oh my God. Sure. I mean, I remember this one day where he was just like, you know, imagine having a mother where you win an Emmy and then you get a phone call 
the next day that's just like, why didn't you thank me on TV? Why didn't mm-hmm. you thank me on TV? You know, mm-hmm. and that was, and he was just like, yeah, just imagine that, just imagine that, you know, like right. he was still being tormented by it, his inner child still being tormented by that relationship as a, mm-hmm. you know, 50 year old man. It's just yeah. amazing how we carry it, you know, throughout our whole, our whole lives, you know, and then you find something to crack a joke with about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, hopefully I feel bad for the drama writers who aren't, aren't finding comic material from. <laughs> well, hey, listen, their, they have their, their past, own, but... they have their own emotional trauma to draw from as well. I'm sure yeah, I can get it out in horror and I guess other places and everything stuff that I don't tend to consume a lot of. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Do you work with you work with writers? You also work with like directors and other creatives, too. Uh, I work with all kinds of creative professionals. Uh, I often work with writers because uh when writers are looking for a therapist and they might see that I have this screenwriting history, they're, they're drawn to that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, mostly writers, comedians. I love working with, uh, I love, I mean, comedy, a sense of humor is the classic defense mechanism that we develop as children to, to protect ourselves from being hurt. Absolutely. And it's really wonderful to work with people to, to help them understand maybe where that comes from, why they're like that. And it's actually a whole nother, uh, whole nother uh, ball of content for comedy to be drawn from, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the therapy sessions with comedians are sometimes like, I just get to sit back and, and laugh. Which, which is also dangerous because uh, that's that defense mechanism, you know, that prevents us from growth too. Yes. I've had insomnia for like my whole, you know, past 10 years after having a child and I had, they want you to go to talk therapy for insomnia and I would just make the therapist laugh. And, you know, after a few sessions of that, realizing that he wasn't going to be able to ever break through my defense mechanisms, I was like, mm. this is, I'm smarter than you, you know, you're, I'm never going to improve here. You got to stop laughing at my jokes. Cause I know how to derail you from our therapy yep. session, you know, <laughs> that's a really good point. I mean, if, if I was working with a client who tended to turn everything into a joke, I would have to really challenge them. Hey, listen, you know, I, you're so funny. Uh, and uh, I can tell your ability to make everything funny is great, but I want to challenge you to talk about something to talk about without feeling like you have to make a joke about it. Right. Cause there's pain underneath that defense mechanism sure. somewhere that, you know, you're protecting, you know, yeah. you're protecting. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I tell I, Yeah. It's so cool. I love that you have this career. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Cause I haven't read it. I'm curious about it. Tell us about writing it. Talk to us about what's in it, what came out of it. Love to hear more. Well, much like the movie dude wears my car, um, I had an idea of what the book was going to be. And then I came up with a title that I love, Dude, Where's My Car? Tharsis. Um, it's a friendly and engaging uh, guide to talk therapy. Um, when I work with clients, I often find myself using metaphors. Um, the path you're on, the road of life, the mountaintop of middle age, right? The long, slow climb to change, um, the dirty dishes of relationship doom, mm. right? Um, there are things that I often find myself, much like a writer, translating what is in the real world into a way of explaining it using a metaphor. And I realized that these were really effective. I started using them well with different clients, uh, the same ones. So I started writing them down in little bite-sized chapters. And so the book is a collection of 50 small chapters uh, with examples of different concepts we use in talk therapy, Think, addressing the quicksand of depression, um, the, the art of meditation, 
uh, working with anxiety, a, a, a really eclectic group of, of topics that is designed uh, hopefully to have people who are curious about talk therapy or maybe have tried it and really didn't stick with them, maybe sort of understand uh, the point and how it might work. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, those are such um, common themes for the writers that I know and talk to as well, and certainly within myself. Um, mm depression, anxiety, you know, being major. Um, and I'm curious to go into that a little bit because I feel like a lot of that connects to writer's block. When I talk to mm -hmm. writers who are, you know, struggling with writer's block, talk to us a little bit about, about that. Well, it's interesting. Let me tie that into writer's block to the quicksand of depression, because that's a chapter I wrote very early on. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, watching uh, Indiana Jones movies and and, and, and you know, African adventure movies where uh, somebody would get caught in a in quicksand and start flapping around and, and it would only draw them under. And I remember like wanting to find out what you do. And it turns out what you do is you just lay motionless and try to float to the surface. Uh, so when I pitch people who are depressed, I tell clients, well, you know, uh, the hardest thing to do when you're depressed is is fight it is to be be mad at yourself for being depressed and do things to not feel depressed and act like you're not depressed because that only often sinks you down further into it. And mm -hmm. the trick is to accept it, to admit it, to engage with it, to be okay with it. And that can help you float to the surface. And I often give the same advice to writer clients about writer's block. Um, you know, taking a 15 minute break and going and get a cup of coffee and then coming back down to the same scene isn't, really that productive in my, in my view, it, you're, you're really fighting it. I think sometimes what you got to do is stop, turn off the computer, uh, go do something else, get your mind totally out of it, pick up a different project, maybe long-term. Um, and, and at the same time, accept that it's okay. Uh, the worst thing I see, right. You know, it's that classic trope of the writer sitting at their desk, pounding their head, pulling out their hair, trying to get the words to come out. That, that to me, doesn't usually end with success. Mm -hmm. it, it's that, it's that stepping away and 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 not looking for the inspiration that often allows us to then find that inspiration, whether it's in the original project we encountered the block at first or something else. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I love that. I think that's why I surf. You know, it's like I mm. cannot bring my phone with me out into the waves. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. great. An hour or two of complete connection with nature and the horizon and the dolphins and everything happening out there is just a complete refresher, literally, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and you get out, yeah. kick your feet through the sand and end up at some point back in front of a screen going, wow, my world just got so small in here. Uh, mm -hmm. But I feel fresh, you know, coming at the page. And um, it was interesting because writer Neil Strauss was a friend of mine who, you know, has written a lot of books, including like Emergency and The Truth. And Neil started surfing. And I was like baffled by that. And, you know, going back like maybe 10 or 15 years, even before we had children and, you know, talking about his relationship with supping and the water and surfing and his dedication to learning surfing older in life, which I did as well. And he mm. was just like, it, it's just so therapeutic for me. It's just so great to get away from the desk and away from the words. And, you know, he's a New York times 
writer and a Rolling Stone writer and was always on a writing deadline. And mm. the pressure of the writing deadline is like just so alleviated by going out and doing something like running or surfing or something where you just don't have to, like you said, sit in front of the desk and beat your head in front of that keyboard, you know, right. to make the words come right. out. Yeah, absolutely. Although sometimes we do have to do that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens. <laughs> Um, as a, you know, you're talking about the types of challenges that we have. I want to talk to you a little bit about writing in middle age and creating in middle age. Cause mm -hmm. I know for myself, some of the changes that I've really seen are like, my eyes are no longer good after 5. PM. I used to write at <laughs> uh -huh. night all the time. Never going to happen anymore. My brain's like oh, now, you know, and the amount of productivity that I used to have, you know, earlier in my thirties and my twenties has really started to slack off. And there's some, you know, there's some sadness and confusion even around that, around the changes of that. And also some acceptance of that slowing down. Talk to us a little bit about your, you know, about your perspective on that. Well, certainly when we're younger, we can be so much more focused and dedicated to the career path we want. I, I have clients all the time who talk about, oh man, when I was in my twenties, moving out to LA, I do get out there all the time, writing, networking, going to shows, coming up with my peers. Now I don't have time for that. Um, we talk about uh, the slice of pie. This is another chapter. When we start out in life, the whole pie is all our, we get it all. And mm -hmm. then we get out, we move out to LA to become whatever we're doing. And it, we get a job, it's a little slice. And we have to, you know, pay the rent, it's a little slice, but we have so much dedicated to our craft and our, our, our dreams. Um, then eventually, Maybe you have to get a job that pays better because you got to pay some more bills. And then you're in a relationship maybe. And then maybe you start a family yeah. and you start portioning off different slices um, to other parts of your life, which is wonderful. But the conflict often happens when we can be unhappy with the amount of pie left we have for our dream. Right. Um, and our creativity. Yes, exactly. And what I work with clients on isn't so much as, well, let's get some of that slice back. It's more like, let's enjoy the slice we have and let's find ways that we can be happy with the slice we have. Um, and it certainly is harder when you get to middle age to work with the same kind of passion and dedication uh, time-wise that you did when you didn't have all these obligations. And in addition, uh, sometimes we might realize, uh, you know, I don't really like this pie anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of this pie. I want to try, I want some cake. <laughs> but 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 I've invested so much in this pie. I bought all this pie. I have so much left, you know. Uh, so there's that there's that issue too. But um, yeah, it's another example I think of how a metaphor can help us uh, understand a concept like this. Uh, but and, and right, I'm right there with you with the eyesight thing. I mean, I I used to write late at night with no glasses, and now I'm up early in the morning with my glasses uh, uh, writing. So it certainly is a, an adjustment. Yeah, fresh eyes. Fresh eyes is everything. What are you writing now? Um, well, I, I'm actually just writing an article about uh, what therapists, uh, what writers, what screenwriters can get out of therapy. Um, uh, I'm I'm writing a sequel to the book. Uh, I work on articles uh, to pitch to both uh, psychology and therapist-based outlets, and as well as creative and screenwriting outlets. Uh, I'm writing an article right now. I really like it. It's about uh, uh, essentially what uh, we can learn about ourselves in therapy and how that can help us develop better characters. And it, I talk about how when I was younger and developing plots and pitches, I would just figure out what happens and then get the characters to do that. And mm -hmm. when I heard about that school of thought, like I just love to have the characters talk to me and hear what they want to do. I was like, that's bullshit. Come on. I got to figure out what the third act is before I write it. Now 
I can see that um, through my therapy work, when like when a client comes in with a preconceived notion about themselves, or I have a preconceived notion about what their problem should be, we don't really do any work. And only when I'm open to exploring and not knowing what's going to happen and asking questions, do we then get into the really good stuff that's really fulfilling that ends up being the real work. Um, so now I, I encourage writer clients to uh, be open to their characters and explore their characters and ask their characters questions the same way I might ask them questions, because we don't know those answers, even though we think we might. And it's in that content that we can often write really compelling, interesting stories that aren't just what we thought the story should be when we came up with it. I love that. The active imagination exercises. Um, I've written a book called Inner Guide Meditation that is a lot about that. Although, mm. you know, it's not necessarily characters, it can be an inner guide. But for me, when I was working on my first novel written in the ashes, I had one character, Alazar, who I was so close to, who I could talk to. And he mm. was actually my go-between to all the other characters who I maybe didn't understand as much. I'd be like, well, what is what is Tarek thinking right now? Like, I don't really understand him. And I could have this inner, you know, conversation with Alzar about these other characters in the book. And that was a huge part of my, of my journey. And even writing that novel, that was so fun. And I think the joy of not being bored in it because it was mm. being revealed, you know, I didn't mm. know what was going to happen in act three. I didn't know what was going to happen on page seven, you know, on page five. Mm. So there was this, uh, this fun, you know, a fun adventure ahead for mm -hmm. me as the writer too, of like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to show up today and get to talk to these people who I really enjoy, you know? Yeah. That's interesting because that's sort of how I feel about my therapy work with clients now. It's an adventure. Yeah. And I never know what's going to come up. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, Phil, Phil Stark. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Hey, thanks for having me. Where can people find you? Tell us where they can find your book, please. Well, uh, you can check out my website. It's starktalk.net. I'm sure you'll post a, a link in the, uh, the, 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 the post. Um, I work with clients via telehealth. So I work with everybody all over the state of California. It's not just how far you live from Los Feliz and whether you can stay in the traffic. It's wonderful. I can work with everybody all over the state. Um, and the book is available on Amazon. Uh, links are also there as well. Um, and... Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I love feedback. I encourage anybody to check out the book and my social me, uh, media contact is there. And I, uh, anybody who's listening who has any feedback or thoughts, I, I, I love to hear it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.